0: and welcome to the Tobolowski Files, a series of stories about life, love, and Hollywood as told by actor Stephen Tobolowski. I'm David Chen, and joining me today, he is the man who played district attorney, uncredited, in the 1993 film Romeo is Bleeding, Stephen Tobolowski. Stephen, how are you doing today?
1: David, you... You've done it. You've done it. This is the mystery I've been trying to solve for, for years. I don't ever remember being in a movie called Romeo is Bleeding, but I played a district attorney in it, you say?
0: Well, it says district attorney uncredited, and uh, well, yeah.
1: This was such a big deal. I wrote IMDb. I wrote <laughs> IMDb. I never write anybody a letter. I wrote IMDb, and I said, what is this about me and Romeo is Bleeding? I don't know what this movie is. I don't know what this script is. Can you please remove my name from IMDb? And they wrote me back, and they said, you're in, Romeo is Bleeding. So I tried to watch Romeo is Bleeding to see if I'm actually in it, but I couldn't couldn't get to the part where the uncredited district attorney makes his entrance. So I'm going to have to get really drunk some night and watch Romeo is bleeding all the way into the entrance of the uncredited district attorney, which, you know, has to come later in the film.
0: Well, I was going to ask you, I've seen this thing happen sometimes where uh, somebody is an actor in a movie and they are uncredited. Right. So what are circumstances under which that has occurred? Like you're doing a favor for someone and you're showing up as a cameo, but like you're uncredited. Like what are the what are the conditions under which you generally be uncredited in something?
1: I think that's the only one I could think of. Like they didn't want to pay you or, right, or you right. were walking to your car like you were eating in Hollywood and walking to your car and someone's shooting with Jet Li on Hollywood Boulevard. And then they see you and they go like, oh, we'll make you a district attorney uncredited, but we don't want to pay you. I can't think of any, I can't think of any reason why other than that. But uh, I don't know, David. I don't know.
0: Well, uh, Stephen, we are, uh, speaking of being out and taking a walk, uh, we oh, are uh, recording our episodes in advance right now. Uh, and so as we're recording this, it's in mid-May 2020. Uh, it'll probably be released a few months after this, but uh, as as we're recording right now, the coronavirus pandemic is rocking the world. So we've spent most of our last few months indoors. Um, and I I thought I'd check in with you to see kind of what are some of the day-to-day things you've been doing to uh get by, to adjust? I'll tell you that one thing that's really helped me a lot is I live in Seattle. We're very fortunate. There's a lot of open space and, and uh place where you can go outside and enjoy nature. So I've been taking a lot of walks. Just going going on two or three walks a day, which is not never something I would have done beforehand. Um what are some of the things you do? Well,
1: I've been I've been walking with Anne as well. You know, we take a little walk with our masks on. And we try to avoid everyone. We even try to avoid dogs now that go down the street. We don't want to get coronavirus from the dogs. Uh, I clean the rabbit cage several times a day. I play the piano a lot. I write podcasts. And I guess over the last few months, I've noticed a change in how I spend my time generally. I've been buried, David, I've been buried under a ton of reading. Not with research and not with scripts and not with works in progress from friends because nowadays everything has literature attached. I first noticed this at a urinal a couple years ago at the Hollywood Bowl. There was a sign in front of each receptacle that said, and this is, of course, an approximation, welcome to the new world of waterless urinals. This single Falcon unit will save the city of Los Angeles 60,000 gallons of water over the next year. The combined conservation from other waterless units around the greater Los Angeles area will have an additional 170 tons of water annually. We are working hard to preserve the precious resources of our beautiful state and make a better future for us all. For more information on waterless urinal technology, call 213-555-7680. I didn't take the phone number down, but I wanted to. I wanted to, David. There's the mystery. During my childhood in Texas, there was very little intercourse between inanimate objects and myself. Usually it was just a single word. Men. Women. Enter. Exit. Coffee. Recently, I found a little booklet fastened to the button of my new pair of pants describing the factory where the pants were made. At a camping store, There was a poem tied to the tops of the water bottles extolling the simple beauty of sitting on a rock, taking a refreshing drink of water while watching the sunset over the great American desert. There were short novellas attached to bags of tangerines at the grocery store. Traffic signs in West Hollywood had incredibly detailed, and I mean like you need a lawyer present, detailed explanations of the conditions upon which you can and cannot park on which side of the street. I discovered the worst of the new literature of the 21st century when I opened a container of cat litter. Before I could pour, I had to remove not an ad, not a glossy one-sheet, but an entire booklet on the history of the cat. With chapters, it included the history of cat litter. The development of this superior litter in a veterinarian's garage. The ten secrets of cat health starting with superior litter, all written in a font so tiny you could use it to write the entire United States Constitution on the back of a pie pan. I was struck by several layers of amazement, not the least of which was that I read the cat litter book. Why? I didn't want to. I had better things to do with my time. I would have had better things to do with my time if I were in prison. And it's not just me. I saw people at the grocery store reading their sack of tangerines. At Starbucks, a man was reading the back of his bag of coffee beans. I'm sure the advertisers are patting themselves on the back for remaking the world in their image, but they failed in their primary mission. I didn't buy the tangerines. I switch brands of cat litter. The new literature for the 21st century is compelling, but not for its intended purpose. I thought about what unified all of these unlikely writings on the wall. The literature was uninvited. It was presented at times and places no one cares to read. I mean, did the urinal company really expect anyone to take down the phone number and call about waterless restrooms? I doubt it. Did the pants manufacturers feel I would be better off if I knew where the sheep grazed before they were shorn and turned into pants? And yet I continued to read. In fact, I can't seem to put the stuff down. I stumbled across an explanation that may explain this phenomenon in a theory presented decades ago by psychotherapist Carl Jung. Finding literature in a cat litter container creates surprise. We ask Why would someone write a book and jam it in cat litter? It is a question that has no answer. When our minds ponder the imponderable, the result is a momentary blip, a vacuum. A primary impulse in the universe is to fill a vacuum. It is hard to accept, but who and what we are is shaped in a large part by the principle that nature abhors a vacuum. Aristotle proposed this theory at a time when there was very little science. Over the centuries, great scientists, from Newton to Einstein, have agreed in large part with Aristotle and have offered their own version that something will rush in to fill nothing. Our personalities, our goals, our worldview can be seen as a composite of when and where we encountered a vacuum and how we chose to fill it. In this way... We are the authors of our lives. I can see my early life shaped by any number of vacuums. My fear of the dark was a vacuum. I filled the absence of light with I, the monster. Jung might find it interesting that the first nightmare I remember having, I was trapped in my living room of our first house on Perryton. Holes appeared in the furniture and the walls and in the floor, and in each hole was a vacuum that sucked you down into a world of fire. In my nightmare, my father tried to rescue me, but his foot touched a hole, and he was pulled beneath into fire, and he was gone. I must have been three when I had this dream. I remember because I have a landmark. We moved to our new house on Water Valley near the woods by the creek, around my fourth birthday. Jung might have suggested that the dream, featuring the dissolution of my home and the loss of my father, As being the story of the end of my infancy. Perhaps it was even prompted by my overhearing talk of the move. That created a vacuum. My response to this vacuum was the need to look beyond my family circle. So I reached out and discovered the woods. When I was six, I walked to school with my brother Paul almost every day. It seemed like the entire world was my vacuum, everything around me was visible but unknown girls frogs milkshakes morning devotional the pledge of allegiance jack and janet tip and mitten tetherball miss bayliss's pencil collection my new vacuum didn't fill me with fear i found it exciting i filled it with learning i wanted to learn anything in my attempt to learn everything footnote in my list of first grade unknowns i rushed past girls Wow. I found them all mysterious. All of them. The girls at Jeff Davis were smarter than the boys, and I'm not blowing smoke. This was clear. Reading, writing, and arithmetic. But there was something else. There was something akin to magic at the sight of Kathy Hodge's petticoats, or Dana Clary's sly smile, or Linda Sargent's ponytail, or Carolyn Denson's laughing dark-eyed wildness as we spun until we fell down dizzy in my front yard. "'Girls created a vacuum in my soul that had no clear remedy, "'like Claire Richard's eyes "'that looked like they were laughing and crying at the same time. "'I felt helpless in her presence. "'I'm not sure why this new attraction was so overwhelming. "'I assume I fell into one of the vacuums of the unconscious mind "'that Jung talks about, "'one that comes at you from a distance from before written history.' Once you're pulled into one of those, I don't think you can ever get out. I encountered an unexpected vacuum in second grade. Our teacher, Miss Cooper, put me off reading through a series of tactics used by prosecutors at the Salem Witch Trials. She called me a liar in class, made me stand in the hallway. Well, yeah, okay, I guess the Salem (laughs) Witch Trials were worse, but not when you're in second grade. Surprisingly, this vacuum turned into multiple blessings. Instead of reading, I spent my time hunting tarantulas. I got a new old bicycle from my brother and set out to see the far reaches of the world. I formed the Dangerous Animals Club with Billy Hart. My mother did not approve of my filling my vacuums with water moccasins. She insisted I look for something else to occupy my spare hours. So that vacuum collided with the vacuum created by Claire Richard's eyes. The result? I began taking piano lessons. The piano has become a huge vacuum in my life. I have enormous difficulty mastering anything, from my first piano recital, Piccolo Pete, to my current wrestling opponent, Beethoven's Tempest Sonata. Initially, I thought the piano would make me more like Claire, except that I couldn't play. All I could do was practice, for hours, irritating everyone in our home, especially my father when he came home from work. My determination to continue taking lessons led to something else completely unexpected. A new kitty. Back in the 1950s, there was no such thing as the Internet. However, there was a form of communication just as fast with an enormous reach. It was the baby cat alert, also known as puppies in the garage. In the age of Elvis, animals weren't fixed. All of them went outdoors whenever they wanted. Consequently, they spent most of their time having unprotected sex. Human owners had to deal with boxes of kittens and or puppies every 66 days. Within minutes of a birth, a phone call went out to various moms in the area. They spread the word like lighting of the bonfires and Lord of the Rings as if to say, on this day, some cats were born. If you needed a cat, you called and got dibs. If you didn't, you joined the network and spread the word. We got our kitten through someone who knew my piano teacher, Miss Hamby. Miss Hamby told Mom, Mom had success weaning me away from snakes with the piano, so she thought perhaps she could wean me away from the piano with something more family-friendly, or at least something easier on the nerves that wouldn't interrupt Dad's TV time. On the way home from Miss Hamby's, Mom stopped at a woman's house. The woman led us into her garage. We tiptoed up to her cardboard box where we saw a sleeping mother cat with several kittens sucking the life out of her. It could have been one of the most beautiful sights I'd ever seen. One kitten was not nursing. He was trying to climb out of the box. <laughs> it was so cute. That was all I needed. Cats have to do very little to impress. I said, that's the one, Mom. She said, all right, Steppy Doors. We picked up the kitten. The lady of the house breathed a sigh of relief that she had one less cat to drown in the river. On the ride home, the kitten climbed up my shirt. It seemed amazed at the size of my face. It gave a little meow. I said, I love you too. My mother looked over at me and smiled. Sweetheart, now you're going to have to come up with a name. Oh, I already know his name, I said. I was lying. I didn't know the cat's name. We often rely on certainty when we want to believe our decisions are part of destiny. Well, what's his name? Mom asked. I looked at the kitty's face. Tiger. I'm going to call him Tiger. This cat is strong like a tiger. Thus, Tiger was christened. We got Tiger home and let him loose. He ran and hid under Mom and Dad's bed. Mom told us to leave him alone until he got adjusted. I tried to let him adjust, but I couldn't. I didn't have the patience. I had to pet a cat. At commercial break from Mickey the Mud Turtle and Amanda Possum Show, I went to take a look. Tiger was gone. Over the next several days, Tiger moved room to room exploring his new world. Whenever he had to go to the potty, he ran to the back door and meowed. Mom let him out. He returned a few minutes later, tapping on the patio door with his paw. Mom took this as a sign of great intelligence. Even though we didn't see much of him at first, I imagined he was happy to be in a place bigger than a cardboard box. The one time we could count on seeing Tiger was at mealtime. Breakfast, lunch, dinner. (laughs) Tiger loved to eat. Whenever he heard the sound of the electric can opener, he ran from wherever he was and waited by the kitchen garbage, waiting for his can of tabby treat. Over the next week or two, Tiger became less shy. He walked openly from room to room. He sat on our favorite chairs. He demanded in-between meal snacks. And then he took over the house. It was a reign of terror. Tiger invented games like, let's tear up the Naugahyde chair. Or, let's rip the red loveseat in the den to pieces. Dad did not like Tiger. He especially hated Tiger's games. One evening after chasing Tiger from one destructive activity to another, Dad said, I feel like we're in a Disney movie. That damn cat. We were horrified by Dad's language. Mom intervened. Dave, that's not the name of the movie. It's that darn cat. Dad looked perplexed. Well, I thought it was that damn cat. We were horrified again. Dave, they would not use language like that for a children's picture. Well, if... Tiger were in the movie, they would. I think Tiger sensed that he and my father had a special relationship. Tiger came up with a new game called Let's Attack Dr. Dave's Ankles. I don't think I'm speaking out of turn, but for us kids, it was our favorite Tiger game of all. We had a morning routine on school days. Mom woke us up for breakfast, and then we were allowed to stay in bed for a few minutes to finish our dream, as Mom used to say. Then we were treated to our version of radio theater. The curtain arose with the sounds of Mom walking back down the hallway from our bedrooms to the kitchen, followed by the clanking of pots and pans. We heard the sounds of breakfast going on the stove. This was Dad's cue to get out of bed and walk towards the coffee pot. Dad was unaware he was being stalked. The drama intensified as the sound of a stealthy cat feet ran up behind Dad and stopped. Blump, 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 probably behind the rocker. Then ran, blump, 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 blump. Stopped again behind a fake plant from Dad's office we kept in the corner of the den. Then came the final sprint, blump, 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 the leap, the strike, occasionally drawing blood. Dad would scream something to the effect, Ah, god damn it, god almighty, goddamn cat. Then we heard sounds of frantic cat feet galloping to a place of safety, probably under my sister Barbie's bed curtain. It was hilarious, and this was not a one-time occurrence. It happened often. We loved hearing Dad scream in the morning. Paul used to reenact the cat attack when we walked to school. He was better at imitating Dad than me. He would yell and hop on one leg and hold his ankle. He waved his arms in the air and pretended to chase tiger. I always secretly hoped he would say, damn, but he never did. Paul had too great a sense of propriety. After every attack, Dad threatened to send Tiger to the farm, wherever that was. He never followed through. This remains one of the great mysteries of my life. Dad has many virtues. Patience has never been one of them. The only possible reason, I think, for his enduring Tiger's continued assaults was his love for us. Either that, or he had very poor short-term memory. Tiger had become like the hammer Dad always threatened to throw away whenever it smashed his thumb. Like the hammer, the cat was now part of the family, and the family had to stay together at all costs. Tiger continued to be full of surprises. One of the biggest surprises was when he had kittens. He was a she. And now he had to get the cardboard box and light the torches alerting the world that on this day, a cat was born. Four of them, actually. Ironically, Miss Hamby called up and asked for a kitten. It was the circle of life. Of all of the girls I knew at Jefferson Davis and Carpenter, there was no one like Claire Richards. Just thinking of her made me dizzy. She was beautiful. She was in the Bluebirds, so once a week she wore a uniform. She could play the piano. And I don't mean Piccolo Pete. Claire played Bach, Mozart, Beethoven. She won competitions. When she played... Her entire body became part of the keyboard. She attacked it. She looked like a wild animal in the deepest part of a faraway forest. She was fearless. In Hollywood today, there's a clamor for having more women in superhero films. I understand the politics of it all. But the deeper reality is is that women have always been the superheroes in my life. They didn't have to fly or have a shield. They just had to be a bluebird. Like most kids, one of the first lessons I learned in school was how to waste time. Now, we didn't have iPhones back then, so it wasn't as easy as it is today. Instead, most kids made lists of whom they wanted to marry. So if there were 19 boys in class, the girls made a list, 1 to 19, in order of preference. So they wrote down their first name 19 times and changed their last name. So Kathy Hodges' number one would be Kathy Aubrey indicating that marrying Jimmy Aubrey was her top choice. A lot of girls had Jimmy Aubrey as top choice because they said he was cool. Whatever that meant in fourth grade. I used to make extra trips to the pencil sharpener to see where I ranked on various lists. My name was so long I could always spot it. I rarely cracked the top ten, but I was never last. That was usually reserved for the one or two boys who ate their boogers. I never had the nerve to walk by the chalkboard on the side of the classroom where Claire sat. I didn't think I could handle the truth of where I ranked on her list. On Square Dance Day, I never picked Claire. I was too afraid of rejection. Our personal time together was confined to talking in the hall on our way to our next class, or on the playground. Claire told me about the books she was reading. She told me about her family vacations. The most dramatic moments in my unspoken romance with Claire was when she invited me to her birthday parties. In fourth grade, it was a horseback riding party. I got Big Gray, who never moved. Considering my future experiences on a horse, I should have considered myself lucky. In sixth grade, I'm guessing Claire was probably turning 12. This was the most special party of all. She invited me to her house She said, we'll have cake and ice cream. We'll take turns on the cable car barrel ride that we built in our backyard. And remember to bring your bathing suit. Bathing suit? Claire had a swimming pool? What world did she come from? She was a bluebird. She read books and she had a swimming pool. This was Oak Cliff, Texas in the early 1960s. The only swimming pools we knew about were Ricky Phillips' rubber swimming pool, his dad blew up when the weather got hot, and the Martin Weiss City swimming pool where we all went to pee. My first thought was I had to get a perfect gift for Claire, maybe piano music that had lots and lots of notes or a thousand-page book my blissful bedtime thoughts of claire opening my present and kissing my cheek saying thank you stephen this is what i always wanted vanished when i was hit by reality this was a swimming party claire would see me in my swimsuit i did not have a summer body sidebar i don't think i ever had a summer body I've always represented the best and worst of male fitness. Strong legs from bike riding combined with fatty sides from eating too many candy bars at the Winwood Theater. As an adult, I learned that if I stood by the pool with my hands on my waist and turned my torso slightly in one direction as if I were looking at something in the distance, I could diminish the overhang. The older I got, the more I had to turn. Eventually, I pulled a ligament and had to quit swimming in public. Footnote to the sidebar. Just this week, I've seen advertisers use the the hands-on-hip-slightly-rotate-the-torso ploy for weight-loss commercials and camping clothes advertisements. I wonder if Jung would suggest that the use of this technique by men for decades, maybe for centuries, signals that it's part of the collective unconscious. And the slightly out-of-shape male trying to look more fit while looking off into the distance represents modern man seeing themselves approach the pure masculine archetype at some time in the future. Maybe. The evening after I got Claire's invitation, I locked myself in the bathroom and tried on each of my two bathing suits. It was disheartening. I was only 11. I didn't expect to look like Tarzan, but I didn't even look like boy. I looked like a sack of sugar donuts. I only had two options. Lose weight, or come down with appendicitis that would force me to miss the party, but it would only turn out to be gas, enabling me to be back at school on Monday. That night in bed, Mom kissed me goodnight. I turned off the light. I started doing sit-ups. I saw no perceptible change in the morning. It looked like I would have to resort to appendicitis. The day the party arrived, my conflicting feelings created a vacuum. My fondness for Claire rushed in. Thoughts of potential embarrassment vanished. I was going to see Claire on the weekend at her home celebrating. It's a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, so what if I was chubby? Mom dropped me off at Claire's house in the woods. Her house was totally different from ours. It looked like a spaceship. It's what house flippers on HGTV would call an open-concept there weren't a lot of interior walls. The dining room flowed into a large living room that featured a grand piano. The grand piano. This was the holy place where Claire practiced. It was wonderful to be a stranger in this strange land. Claire's mother and father were extremely friendly. It made me nervous. I figured they had to be super nice as part of their religion. They were Mormons, whatever that was. This was the first new religion I had encountered. Everyone at school was some form of Christian, except for me, and now maybe Claire. Religions always have rules that made less sense than the rules at the YMCA swimming pool. Some of the Christians at our school didn't dance. Some didn't play music. Some ate fish on Fridays. No one in Oak Cliff drank alcohol. Now, check that. No one bought Alcohol. Oak Cliff was what they call a dry community. Someone once told me the closest beer was 22 miles away. The local officials made sure that if you lived in Oak Cliff, you had to drive and drink. I was Jewish. I knew I had no room to judge. We wore little beanies. We said prayers in Hebrew. But Mormons didn't drink Coca-Cola. That was a dangerous idea. I didn't care. My affection for Claire was proof that love conquers all. If we got married, I would be fine drinking milk for the rest of my life. The party started off with a bang cake and ice cream, and lots of it. We skipped over the compulsory two hour waiting period after eating to swim. Mid cake, Claire yelled, Everyone get into your bathing suits and head for the pool. All the girls were giggling about changing, the boys were silent. I went to a downstairs bathroom, pulled on my swimsuit, made one final look in the mirror. Ugh, sugar donuts. I burned with shame. My desperation suggested an option that was better than appendicitis. I was the third fastest kid in our school. I bet I could run from the bathroom to the pool and get submerged before anyone saw me. And it worked. I was underwater before anyone else had changed. The girls walked out in small clusters, laughing and chatting, shrieking a little when they stepped into the cold water. Other hefty boys used the ploy of doing a cannonball, hoping to hide their flab in a tucked position. This worked to a certain extent, and they were still able to get attention by being a public nuisance. It was the way of the world that I would see replayed the rest of my life. For girls, the first line of defense is charm. For boys, it's the size of the splash. The rest of the day was joyous. Cable car barrel rides, playing tag. Claire got lots of presents. I'm sure my gift added to her joy. I ended up leaving that shore to mom. She has good taste. Monday at school, my anxiety returned. I wasn't sure if Claire thought less of me now that she knew I was husky. My feelings of dread were compounded by a rumor that I heard on the playground Claire already had a boyfriend. Some piano player in the Mormon church. This was trouble. You can't compete with God. Love is not just a matter of finding the key to someone's heart. Women have combination locks. You have to do the right things in the right order. I was only 11 going on 12. I felt I couldn't properly woo Claire without a car, a job, or having read the Book of Mormon. The result of my despair was surprising. I jumped into my piano lessons with more zeal. I thought someday I would be good enough to play for her. Claire continued to be with me in a more passionate way than ever, as an inspiration. Inspiration is a form of love where no one picks up the check. There are no promises, only devotion. And the only betrayal is to yourself. The inspiration of Claire manifested itself in another way. I felt the need to read again. In the back of my mind, I was thinking someday I could compare my list of the 100 greatest books with Claire's. I began with Superman. Doherty's drugstore had racks of comic books for source material. Superman as a young boy. Superman as a baby. Superman with Supergirl. Superman in outer space. Despite all the variations, Superman appeared to be the simple story of a young man with seemingly limitless powers, but with a fatal flaw kryptonite. It was compelling. Superman taught me that no job was as good as it appeared. The only way you know bullets bounce off of your chest is if people are shooting at you. My friend and president of the Dangerous Animals Club, Billy Hart, urged me to read Batman. It was more cerebral. Batman didn't have superpowers. He just wanted to look like he did. In place of limitless strength and the ability to fly, Batman only had a lot of money, a fast car, and courage bordering on recklessness. He had to live or die by his wits. It was hard to put down. From there, I took the natural leap to Justice League of America. My expectations were it would be Superman times eight. But I was wrong. The tone of Justice League was completely different. It was shockingly optimistic. The story proposed that there was an order to the universe. Just as the threats to our lives grew without warning, the angels dedicated to our protection also grew. The author of Justice League proposed that evil was a question of motivation. The villains were driven by greed. Our heroes stood for freedom. Rock would always beat scissors. As I said, shockingly optimistic. Before long, I was reading almost daily at Doherty's. Frequency turned into habit. Habit turned into ease. Ease into a sense of empowerment, which led to a big change in my life. I decided to buy my first comic book. The Fantastic Four meets Doctor Doom cost 25 cents. I knew I had to buy Dr. Doom with my own money. I didn't have a full-time job. Twenty-five cents represented a week of making my bed. I hesitated. Billy Hart rooted me on. He walked with me up to the counter with Dr. Doom. Oh, you're going to love the Fantastic Four, Billy said. I want to hear who your favorite is. I bet you it'll be The Thing. The Thing, I asked. Yeah, said Billy. That's him on the cover. "'Gosh, is he a good guy?' "'Yeah, I know, he looks like a bad guy, but he's super strong. "'Cool. "'I like the idea that ugly people could be heroes. "'The thing was orange and appeared to have a terrible case of eczema. "'I put my money down. "'This was the first book I owned. "'I started to read my new Fantastic Four at the counter. "'Billy stopped me. "'Hey, you can't read that here.' "'I can't?' I asked. "'No,' said Billy. "'That's a waste.' You own this now. It's yours. You could take it home and read it. You could read it in bed in the backyard. You could read it down by the creek. You could read this anywhere, anytime you want. Fantastic Four meets Dr. Doom gave me new powers. But I quickly learned it also gave me new responsibilities. Ownership meant I had to exercise delayed gratification. That was impossible. I always got X's on my report card in self-control. Part of growing up is redefining the impossible. I managed to wait until bedtime. That that was a monumental task. I put on my PJs, I filled my bedtime glass of water, and began. I read Dr. Doom from beginning to end, and then I started all over again, hoping I would dream of more Fantastic Four adventures. I didn't. I slipped back into my usual dream of being stranded on a desert island with Claire. That was all right. Claire was better than Dr. Doom anyway. Schools promoted reading through something called Scholastic Book Day. In class, we were given catalogs of books available for purchase. Now, these weren't classics like No David Copperfield, Not Wind in the Willows. Scholastic Books provided paperbacks from their own stable of authors. Books like Princess Puppy, Truckful of Ducks, and Bad Kitty Takes the Test. But two books caught my interest. The first was Fire Hunter. The cover led me to believe this was the story of a caveman fighting a saber-toothed tiger with a spear. That was hot. The second was a joke book called Rip Snorters and Rib Ticklers. I don't think I was the class clown, but I was the kid my teacher always punished for being the class clown. I needed better material. I thought Rip Snorters was a good place to start. Together, these books cost over $5. That was a lot of money in a world where a piece of pie cost a dime. More to the point, in my world, Mom paid for the pie. I didn't remember how to figure out how many beds I would have to make to pay for the books. I was sure it involved multiplication, which was not my strong suit. I was hoping if I turned on the charm, Mom would lend me the money until I was old enough to mow lawns, and then I could pay her back. We had two weeks before we had to bring in the money and put in our orders. That was time to soften her up, I figured. I asked her that night at dinner. But I didn't even have to ask twice. She was happy I wanted to read. In a couple of weeks, I would have two books to discuss with Claire. Well, one, Fire Hunter. I wanted to keep rip-snorters and rib-ticklers a secret so I could steal the material more freely. The next morning, Tiger waddled up to her can of food. I had to look twice. Mom, does Tiger look bigger to you? My mother turned away from the eggs and bacon on the stove and gave a quick look. Well, she does seem wider, sweetheart. It's hard to tell from this angle. We probably should cut back on her food. I don't think she needs to eat three times a day and have snacks. Well, I don't see how she could eat so much tabby treat. I tried to eat some, but I couldn't. It smells horrible. Mom stared at me. Sweetheart, don't eat the cat food. I didn't. Mom made a face. Don't even try to eat it. I don't think it's good for people. Mom, do you think Tiger's pregnant again? I asked. My mother thought back to recent events. "'It could be, Steppy Doors. "'She spends a lot of time outdoors with Texas and Vincent. "'Vincent was in our garage meowing just a couple of weeks ago. "'What does that mean?' I asked. "'That he's up to no good, probably.' "'I went to the world book and looked up cat. "'It seems like the length of time it takes to make a baby cat is very short, "'around 60 days. "'I shouted with joy, "'Great! Tiger is pregnant again! More kittens!' I ran down the street and told Alice Nell Allen the news. She asked that when the time came if she could be there and watch. She said she had never seen anything being born. I told her I would give her a call. The call went out one rainy weekend morning. Tiger started making low, long growls that sounded like when I was playing Mom's opera recording at 16 RPMs. Mom looked at Tiger pacing around the kitchen in distress. "'Dave, it's time!' Dad came out of the bedroom in his pajama bottoms. Mom gently held Tiger's front half while Dad got on his hands and knees and lifted her tail. Yeah, she's starting to dilate, he murmured. I knew something special was happening. It was the first time I ever saw Mom and Dad crawling on the floor. I'm going to call Alice, I said. Dad grunted as his bones cracked as he stood up. Better get the cat out of here. Mom rushed into the laundry room and pulled out a cut-off bottom half of a cardboard box she had prepared. She backed the cars out into the driveway, pulled down the garage door. Mom placed the box in the center of the garage and put an old bathroom towel inside to make it cozy. Then, at great personal peril, she lifted Tiger and placed her in the box. Tiger was in the box moaning when Alice Nell arrived. Alice was so excited. Did I miss anything? she asked. Not yet. "'Tiger's just growling. "'Alice stood on one side of the garage. "'I stood on the other. "'Tiger yelped and jumped out of the box. "'Mom, Tiger's out of the box!' "'Mom came running outside. "'Oh, dear,' she said. "'I'll put her back in,' I said. "'No, no, no, she'll bite you. "'Just let her be.' "'Mom was a nurse before she met Dad. "'I knew she had seen a lot of births, "'so I trusted her about the cardboard box. "'Tiger started walking around the box in circles.' looking like she was lost. Then she started running in circles. Alice started laughing. Part of a kitten started coming out of Tiger's back end. Tiger screamed and ran faster and faster, and the kitten flew out and rolled across the garage floor. Tiger shrieked, and then a second kitten was slung across the garage. Then a third was flung over by the bicycles, and a fourth flew under the lawnmower. Alice was jumping up and down and clapping, and then came a ton of something that wasn't a kitten. It was wet. It was bloody. Tiger stopped running and went over and started eating the bloody mess. Oh, that must be the afterbirth, Mom said. I was horrified. After Tiger ate the bloody mess, she began to meow softly, looking for her kitten's, and she found each one. Grabbed it by the neck, carried it to the box, and dropped it on the towel. She even found the one that was under the lawnmower. Then Tiger climbed into the box and collapsed. I was still horrified. Alice walked over quietly and looked at Tiger and the kittens in the box. Alice whispered, Is she dead? No, Mom said. She's just exhausted. That took a lot of work. See? She's such a good mother. How did she know how to sling those kittens, I asked. God taught her. Mom said. Let's go inside and leave her some peace and quiet. It was hard not to be in the garage, but fortunately I had learned about delayed gratification. Alice and I waited for a few minutes before tiptoeing out to check on her. It was so cute. All the kittens were lined up along Tiger's belly, drinking while they were sleeping. I told Mom I wished I could drink while I was sleeping. Mom said, The kittens aren't sleeping, sweetheart. They're blind. All kitties are born with their eyes closed for a few days. Mom, why did Tiger eat that bloody mess? Darling, that's the afterbirth. My mother told me animals eat that so they have the energy to make milk. I found all of this information horrifying. I wasn't sure what God was thinking about when he made the world, but I was glad he worked out all of the details. Kittens did open their eyes. It was fun to watch them see the world for the first time, stumble around, and then go back to Tiger for a drink. It was easier to name them after they could see. Their eyes carried their personality. We came up with Osgood, Baldy, Lucifer, and TJ. TJ stood for Tiger Jr., T.J. was clearly the run to the litter, and we wanted to give him a name with some serious juju so he would grow up to be strong like his mother. Our house returned to normal. Sort of. The kitty stayed in the box in the garage until they were old enough to learn that the world was their toilet. Footnote. I don't think we even knew there was such a thing as litter boxes. I never saw one until I was in college. Even then, it didn't make any sense that you would encourage your cat to potty in your house. When we moved to Water Valley, Mom and Dad bought us a sandbox and set it up on the patio. Playtime ended when we got Tiger. One afternoon, I went out to make sandcastles and discovered I was sitting in the kingdom of cat turds. One morning, we were running late for school. I grabbed my lunch while Mom backed the car out of the garage. I heard a scream. It wasn't human. It was short and loud and terribly painful. I ran outside. TJ was crushed under Mom's front tire. Mom stopped the car and got out to see what happened. It was clear TJ was dead. He was under the front tire. His body was broken. His head was twisted. He was staring into nothing. My mother started screaming like I had never heard in my life, Oh, God! Oh, no! 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 I'm sorry! I'm so sorry I killed him! I held my mother, but she broke away from me. She bent down to look at poor DJ and fell on her knees in tears. I was crying too, but now I felt like I couldn't. I had to help Mom. I lifted her up and held her. You didn't know. You couldn't see him. Everyone else was in the box. You didn't know. Mom was crying so hard she couldn't breathe. Please, please, please forgive me. I'm so sorry. Move the car forward, Mom. Move the car forward. And I'll get T.J. I'll bury him. Just move the car forward. I helped Mom back in the car, but she couldn't drive. She bowed her head against the steering wheel, sobbing. It's all right, Mom. Just move the car forward. Just a few inches. I'll get him. She did. I retrieved the kitty. His mouth was open. His eyes were wide open, still staring. I got the shovel. "'took him to the side of the house and dug a hole "'and put him in, covered him up, and said, "'Please, God, take care of TJ. "'We didn't mean to hurt him. "'And then I fell over in the grass, crying. "'I stopped myself and returned the shovel. "'Mom was still in the car. "'Mom, I'll get my lunch, and we'll go to school. "'Mom nodded, lost in grief. "'Now we were really going to be late for school.' In the short ride, Mom kept begging for forgiveness. I kept telling her everything would be all right, as if I had the power. I got out of the car in a state of shock. I stopped crying. I was at school now. I was a boy. Boys don't cry. My mind burned with the image of TJ, holding him in my hands at his funeral, and my last prayer, and my mother's grief. I barely beat the tardy bell as I sat down in homeroom. The morning announcements came over the PA. I didn't hear a thing. Class began. Our teacher walked in front of her desk. I hope you all didn't forget that today is Scholastic Book Day. Pass your money and your order forms to the front. Her words tore a hole through my heart. In all of the horror of the morning, I had completely forgotten. Whatever held me together disintegrated. Hot tears fell down my face. I struggled not to make a sound. I pulled out a Kleenex and pretended I had to sneeze, and in the process, I wiped my face. I lowered my Kleenex, and there was Claire Richards. She looked into my eyes and whispered, Stephen, are you all right? I was afraid to speak. I just shook my head. Claire drew closer. What's wrong? Thoughts of the morning, and my mother and TJ flooded through me. I whispered, Nothing. Forgot my money. Claire handed me her order form. Check the books you want, she said. My hand was shaking as I checked Fire Hunter and Rip Snorters and Rip Ticklers. I don't have any money, I said as I gave the form back to Claire. It's all right, Claire put her hand on my shoulder. It's all right. Our teacher called out, "'Are there any more orders?' Claire raised her hand, "'Yes, ma'am. Mine is here.' She gave the teacher the order, form, and money for my two books. Claire never needed a golden lasso of truth. Her weapon was kindness, and in my eyes, nothing could withstand her power. I don't remember if I paid her back for my two books. I suspect my debt got lost in the turmoil of that day. But Claire didn't hold it against me. I know she didn't. Several days later, after the tears, after the kittens were released into the house to destroy the remainder of our furniture, after I read Fire Hunter, I was in class, walking back to my desk. I glanced at Claire as I passed. She was writing something. It wasn't homework. Oh, God she was working on her list of the order of boys in class she would marry i tried to look away but i couldn't my heart was beating hard in horrible anticipation and there it was unmistakable claire topolski i had made it to number 2 number 1 was claire aubrey yeah i could live with that jimmy aubrey was cool postscript not long ago, Anne decided to open a box of odds and ends that was shipped from Dallas in the wake of my mother's death and my father moving into assisted living. She laughed and said, Well, at least we don't need to keep this. Stuck inside my high school graduation present of the complete works of Shakespeare was the ancient copy of Rip Snorters and Rib Ticklers. I gasped, "'Oh, no and no! This has to stay always, forever! "'You're kidding! No, no, not at all. This is special. "'This book is not a book. It's a photograph. "'It's a picture of a day of absolute heartbreak and absolute love.'" Anne sighed, "'Where do I file it?' "'I thumbed through the faded pages of corny jokes and cartoons.'" and a section of the library dedicated to new literature for the 21st century. Whenever I see this, I'll remember I still have a debt to pay.
0: Here's a wishing well Here's a penny for anybody. thought it Makes you smile. Every diamond dream. Every. That was New Literature for the 21st Century, a series of stories told by actor Stephen Tobolowsky, and you're listening to The Tobolowsky Files. Stephen, uh, I am told recently you had a chance to meet Claire Richards again, yes?
1: Yeah, Claire has moved out of the country. She lives in like Dubai somewhere now, and she teaches women economics. Uh, Amazing story of Claire, but she came into Los Angeles and, and called me and Right as I was finishing this story So I sent it to her for her approval And she said, let's have lunch So of course I had to take her up on lunch And I drove down to Long Beach And saw Claire again for the first time in years Still beautiful And I offered to pay her the $5 For uh, rib, Rib snorters And rib ticklers And the fire hunter But she said, no Stephen, no we could consider it even if you pick up lunch. <laughs> no. <laughs> no. And she no, ordered gonna... the most expensive things off the <laughs> most menu. Ex- no, no, no. Not Claire. <laughs> not Claire. Not Claire. Well, I'm joking. Yeah, but I offered to pay her back. Yeah.
0: That's what's beautiful about your story, Stephen, that, that you've sometimes relayed to us is that uh, the great thing about telling true stories is that they, they go on. They continue, right? That's right. They're always that's being right written.
1: Thing. Always.
0: Well, um, thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Tobolowski Files. This episode of the Tobolowski Files was powered by Simplecast. If you're looking for the first and last word in podcast management and analytics, check out simplecast.com. Uh, they're a great service to start or maintain a podcast, and we really appreciate them powering the Tobolowski Files. Stephen, uh, we also got some video versions of this podcast online somewhere, right?
1: I think so, David. Is it Tobofiles at, at uh, YouTube.com?
0: Yeah, YouTube.com slash Tobofiles is where you can find it.
1: I have so, dyslexia
0: with, with the. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So say that again. What is it again?
0: It's YouTube.com slash Tobofiles. And I do want to just point out that uh, Stephen Tobolowsky has worked with literally the greatest directors alive. He's probably memorized. He's He has forgotten more <laughs> lines than I have ever remembered in my life. Right? But right. for some reason, when I ask him to remember the phrase youtube.com slash tobofiles, <laughs> he, he is unable to rise to the challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so don't know what's going on there. But you know it's we will work with what we've been given. We all work with what we've been given. So <laughs> youtube.com slash tobofiles, we've got a new new channel there, you can check it out. Uh, but yeah, thanks so much. You can also find Steven and me on Twitter He's at Tobolowski on Twitter. I'm at Dave Chensky. It's Dave Chen, S K Y, the Russian spelling. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on the Tobolowski Files. Adios.
1: Love and happiness for you. Oh, if I could only.